Snap Studios. Okay, so ever since the firecracker started, I've been wanting to take them. See, Snap Studios, right on the edge of Chinatown. And as soon as you start hearing that, pop, 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 pop. You know it's just about time. It opens Chinatown every year. There's a massive Chinese New Year celebration. Now my little man, when we're two years old, I told him to get ready because we're going to the festival, right? It's a beautiful Saturday. We start early. Thousands upon thousands of people start packing downtown. I kind of push my way through the crowd to find a spot on the curb where a little boy can actually see what's happening. He claps when the procession starts with all these drummers. They're followed by a kid's dancing troupe, all in white. It's angelic. And I watch him seeing all this for the first time. It's awesome. Men stroll by on giant stilts for legs. Then hundreds of old ladies holding yellow and blue lanterns, puppets on strings, a twirling flower show, so much color. Then the crowd starts pressing in tight, and I know it's just about time, and there it is. Gorgeous red, orange, black, 25 feet long, leaping, shimming, animated by six separate dancers, the dragon, tail whipping from side to side, the head spins directly towards us, and it opens wide its huge mouth. My little boy looks up at the monster and takes off top speed into a wall of people. Hey! Hey! I run after him, but I'm a grown man fighting a sea of people. Look for the little boy! 10 seconds. 20 seconds. Who sees a little boy? 60 seconds. I'm starting to panic. Nobody move! Nobody move! I'm like a crazy person. People back away from me best they can. Look down! Everybody look down now! Two minutes go by. Three. I see two police officers. I need a perimeter! We were right there. He's gone. He's two! He's two years old! Don't let these people leave! Call! Call somebody! I'm running again. I'm screaming. Boy! Boy! And then I see him sitting on the stairs of somebody's shop eating an ice cream cone. Where did he get an ice cream cone? Probably pulled it out of the garbage or something. And I'm weeping, running up to him, hugging him, kissing him. Boy, boy, where'd you go? Why'd you do that? Why'd you do that? And he looks up at me like, I'm simple. Like he has to explain stuff to me slowly. Uh, big dragon. I run away fast. He takes a bite of his ice cream cone, nods. Like he's confident in that decision. And I'm still out of my mind. 
I want to holler some more. Tell him not to run away from dragons. But that doesn't even make any sense. Think about it. And I tell him, listen, next time you run away from a dragon, take daddy with you. Today, on Snap Judgment, from Snap Underground Studios, we probably present Quick Fix. Quick Fix. Making stories from real people trying to find the simplest solution. My name is Glenn Washington. Please enjoy the festivals in your life. Because you're listening to Snap Judgment. We're going to start off today's episode with one of my dear friends who came up with a simple solution to his problem. This story is from Snap Judgment live in San Francisco. Amazing storytellers, amazing crowd. And we've got you the very best seat in the house. Snap Judgment live. Our next storyteller, he was with us from day one, Mr. Josh Healy. How do you enjoy life as the world burns? When the planet is on fire and the country's falling apart and the cops shoot another teenager and half your neighbors are getting evicted or deported and Bill Maher is still speaking out loud on television. What do you do? I go to the water park with my nephew Miles. Miles is 12 years old. He is a brilliant, bow-legged troublemaker. I love him despite the fact that he's 12 and still has a rat tail. It's really not that cute anymore, dude. We're not related by blood, but Miles' dad, Kevin, is like a brother to me. So Miles calls me Uncle Josh. Uncle Josh, when are we going to the Warriors game? Uncle Josh, will you show me how to open that car with a hanger again? Uncle Josh, Uncle Josh, if, since I'm half black and half Asian, does that make me Blasian? No, Miles, that makes you Oakland. It's August, and it's hot, which for the Bay Area means anything above 67. Today, it's 91. I'm over at Kevin and Miles' place, sitting in no AC, in our tank tops and boxers, watching Key and Peel. I say, guys, we gotta go somewhere to cool off. Cooler than the movie theater, cooler than the mall, I'm gonna take us to East Bay Waterworld. Miles' face lights up, but then Kevin says, I don't know you guys. I mean, those water parks, you know, they're so wasteful. (laughs) My man Kevin is the worst kind of Bay Area environmentalist. (laughs) 
He's that type of dude who will come over your house and use the bathroom, not flush, but instead write a note on your toilet paper telling you how much water he just saved you. That's a true story. I say, Kevin, it's so hot out here, I could fry an egg on your face, which I will if we don't go to East Bay Waterworld. Miles says, please, Dad. I say, please, Dad. Kevin says, fine. Go have fun at the park, but take my car. It's a hybrid. I grab the keys, and soon me and Miles are driving through Oakland. We pass by the trilingual liquor store, the farmer's market that accepts food stamps, and we make our way through the tunnel in the hills. We emerge on the other side in the valley. The further we get from the coast, the ground is drier and drier, browner and browner. The only green is the manicured lawns of the suburbs, the golf courses, the empty field of the sprawling county jail. And then we see it, and we arrive at our Mecca, our oasis in the California desert, East Bay Waterworld. And it's even more beautiful than I imagined. There's four wave pools. There's a 50-foot water park. The air smells like chlorine and sunscreen and funnel cake. Delicious. Miles' mouth is wide, staring at all these things he's never seen before. Carnival games, dipping dots, girls in bikinis. Uncle Josh, this place is awesome. I know, Miles. I know. We go and we jump in the wave pool. We float down the lazy river. We spin through the whitewater rapids until we're totally drenched, grinning ear to ear, and surprisingly thirsty. So uh, I go to the funnel cake vendor for something to drink. Uh, can I get a bottle of water, please? He says, no problem. That'll be $7. $7 for a bottle of water. He looks at the bottle. Uh, it says, and he literally read off the bottle. It says, this here is uh, bottled uh, and purified up near Lake Tahoe. Uh, this is California water. California water. I buy two bottles and walk back to where Miles is pointing up towards the sky. I follow his gaze, and then I see it. There. Staring down at us from the tallest point in the park is the biggest water slide I've ever seen. The tallest slide in Northern California, the Annihilator. <laughs> the Annihilator is a seven-story, 80-foot free-fall drop down all in just under five seconds. It's one of those slides that's so vertical, your back comes off the ride when you go down, so you feel like if you lean over just a little bit, you're done. It's the type of slide that's illegal in 27 states and most of the European Union, but hey, this is California. I look and see Miles. His mouth is watering in anticipation. We go and get in line.
Now the worst part of the Annihilator isn't the ride down. That's only five seconds. The worst part is the 30 minute wait in line, standing in the stairs, watching and hearing every kid go down the slide. Hearing every scream, every shriek, every, oh sweet baby purple Jesus. That's a direct quote from a nine year old. Shout out to purple Jesus. Miles is nervous. His hand is clenching the railing. Uncle Josh, is this thing safe? Before I can answer, I hear a voice shouting from the top of the stairs. Hands up, put your hands up. It's the lifeguard. A tall white teenager in red shorts. He's yelling at the girl about to go down the slide. I'm telling you, it's way more fun if you put your hands up. <laughs> and the words hit me like a tsunami. It's August, two weeks after Ferguson, after Mike Brown. After those words, hands up, became the calling cry for a movement. In Missouri, people are putting their hands up to protest the police murdering another black boy in America. In California, I'm watching kids put their hands up as they go down a water slide called the Annihilator, and my nephew asks me if it's safe here. It's August in America. In Detroit, they're shutting off poor people's water. California is suffocating of thirst. Half of my friends are putting buckets of ice over their faces on Facebook. Israel is bombing water treatment plants in Gaza. And in America, we have water parks in the desert, industrial almond farms in the desert, prisons in the desert. My family, me and my nephew right here in the desert looking for anything that could be called an oasis. And Miles asked me if it's safe here. What am I supposed to tell him? I don't want to lie to my nephew. I want him to know that yes, some people will always see him as a threat, but I also want him to laugh and play and go get on this crazy ass water slide. How do you enjoy life as the world is burning? How do you teach your nephew to hate the park but love the ride? The thing is called the Annihilator. I think it might be trying to tell us something. <laughs> and now we're next in line. A girl with blonde pigtails is shaking her head. The lifeguard says, it's okay. You don't have to do it. She backs away, and now Miles is up. He steps to the edge of the slide, puts his feet in the rushing water. I can see the brown hills in the distance, Oakland and all its beautiful contradictions waiting on the other side. I wave at Miles, say, you got this, you got this, dude. 
and he waves back at me. And when he does, he lets go of the railing. His hand shoots up in the air and the rushing water carries him away. He lets go, he shoots out and disappears over the edge. My nephew! I rush to the side and look over. And there's Miles at the bottom of the slide, safe and alive and pulling up his bathing suit. <laughs> he jumps up and runs to get back in line. And the cycle continues. Water, blood, life, death, and maybe rebirth. I'm still on the top platform of the slide. I walk to the edge, look down at California, lift my hands, and let go. Josh Healy, just one of the go-to storytellers here on Snap. That original score that you're hearing right now was composed by Alex Mandel and is being performed by Alex and the Snap Judgment players Tim Frick and David Brand. And I've got news. You can see this performance from Snap Live filmed in all of its glory right now at snapjudgment.org. Now coming up next, we're going to the very place that most people hope they never end up. And someone's going to tell a lie for the very best reason of all. When Snap Judgment, the quick fix episode continues, stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the quick fix episode. Today, we're delving into very uncomplicated solutions to very complicated problems. Snap Judgment's Joe Rosenberg spoke to Ghazi Albalui, a guy for whom things never stay very simple. Before 9-11, my biggest problem was women finding out that my astrological sign was uh, was a Gemini. That was like a big thing. And if you're a Gemini, you might as well um, have every venereal disease in the book. No woman is going to want to have anything to do with you. This is Ghazi. Uh, my name is Ghazi Albalui. I was born in a refugee camp. So I'm background-wise, I am a Jordanian-Palestinian. Ghazi's parents moved with him to Brooklyn when he was just a baby. And as a young man in the 90s, he says his race and background weren't a huge problem. Just, I think I had a little bit more um, confidence as a person because I didn't have anything that told me you cannot date this woman because of where you were from. But of course, like he says, that was before 9-11. On 9-11, his ethnicity kind of took over his life immediately. So from my window, you could see the Twin Towers. So I could see the smoke coming out of one of them. You know, of course, the word terrorist immediately in my mind, I'm going, oh, you know, holy crap, I hope it's not what I think it is. 
like at around 9.30 a.m., I left the house. Before I left the house, I had this Puerto Rican medallion because I had gone to the Puerto Rican Day Parade. I threw it on as kind of a, let them think I'm Puerto Rican because I have no idea what's going to happen once I venture outside this house. I, I pictured it. They're going to round up all the Arabs. They're going to dock ships. These tanks are going to come out, and there's going to be soldiers marching up and down, pulling Arabs out of their homes and stores and stuff. So I was afraid, and I, and I went, and I started running into people from my neighborhood who knew me. You know, one guy who I knew really, really well said, oh, you guys really did it this time. I said, this is just not good. So I had a, a fellow friend who happened to be Muslim. He goes, Ghazi, let's, uh, it's really messed up. Let's go, let's go to the, to the masjid. Let's go to the mosque and, and uh, pray together. We all need to be really sh- strong together as people. And I'm like, are you out of your mind? The last place I want to be is in a grouping of other Muslims right now. I'm wearing a Puerto Rican medallion. I'm already kind of going in a different direction here. I'm undercover at this point, and you're breaking my cover. I knew right then and there you can't be the you can't be a Muslim. For a really long time, I'm struggling with the fact that I'm a ghost in in, in New York City. I would walk past these bars with these American flags and the wanted poster of Osama bin Laden with a big target on his head. And I would always look at Osama and I would say, you know, if he shaved his beard, he probably looks like me. Ghazi didn't go out or socialize for months. And when he finally did, it wasn't good. Yeah, the dating didn't go too well because eventually it would just, the women would say, Ghazi, oh, that's such an interesting name. Um, Where are you from? And then, you know... Now I got to say Middle East, right? What am I going to say? There's no way around that. You cannot, like, mess with that name. I could see that moment. It was just literally like the lights went out in in the eyes. And for me, and then at that point, I started to feel that my sex life was being by Osama bin Laden in a cave somewhere in Afghanistan in Tora Bora. So Guzzi thought, I can't be this guy anymore if I ever want to find love. I need to be someone else, someone different. So he started searching. And in New York, you don't have to search very hard to find different. It was like Union Square. You'd always have the Scientology tent. Um, you had an atheist tent that was always there. You had Buddhists always chanting around. I'm walking walking down in uh, Union Square Park, and I'm stopped by a guy who I didn't know. And I look up. He goes, oh, you're from Brooklyn, right? I said, yeah, 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 I'm Brooklyn. He goes, yeah, I, I knew it. Yeah, you're a Brooklyn Jew. I could hear it in your uh, accent. I said, well, I'm definitely from Brooklyn. He goes, ah, what, you, you want to come? Why don't you come with me? Why don't you come with me? And I look, and there's this, um, I thought it was a menorah mobile because there was a menorah on top of this van. And it looked like, you know, any kind of van that was used for, like, blood donation. You know, doors are open. You can go in. And I peeked my head inside, and I saw another guy in there. And what was happening was some sort of kind of rituals of prayer or whatnot. He says, oh, repeat after me. And then I, and he starts to do this Jewish prayer, you know, I'm just like saying stuff. And uh, I just told him, look, I'm not really religious. And I feel that I'm being judged for my religion. And it's, uh, it's been a really rough time for me. And I think people just hate me. He goes, you're supposed to suffer. You're supposed to feel this way. And you're suffering because you're the chosen. You're one of the chosen people. And he goes, and, you know, you're Jewish. It made complete sense to me. And I don't know if it's because Islam and and Judaism are very close, 
but the transition between being a Muslim to now going into being a Jew worked so well. He kind of gave me the reason that everything I've gone through, including 9-11, was because I was, you know, this is my plight as a Jew, you know? I was like, yeah, okay, Ghazi has been suffering because he's a Jew, you know? And, like, he gave me this plastic bag that had, um, like, the he had a dreidel in there. It was a plastic um, menorah. Ghazi was now reborn coming out of that mitzvah mobile. In my mind, as I was walking, like, people were a lot more nicer to me. People were making eye contact with me. I mean, I'm no, I know I'm, like, projecting all this, but I literally felt that now New Yorkers were looking at me, you know, and, and were, oh, hey, it's Ghazi, Ghazi the Jew, you know. It's like, okay, he's cool, he's all right, you know. To be clear, Ghazi didn't convert. The guy in the menorah mobile thought Ghazi was already a Jew. Converting to Judaism is a lengthy process involving a ton of Torah study. But he has this idea. He went to his computer that night. I typed in uh, Jewish singles dating. I, I remember typing that in, and I got J-Date. And if you don't know what J-Date is, don't worry. Ghazi didn't either. But basically, it's like the Jewish match.com. Then and there, I remember seeing these smiling faces of these Jewish women. I was just so happy. I was like, if I can get one of these girls, I'd be so happy. I called myself, myself J Writer 718. J, of course, standing for Jew. I picked like this really interesting photo that didn't really like reveal my whole face. But just like that, he got messaged by a nice Jewish girl. We went out and uh, I tried my best to kind of uh, put on my shtick. All I had to go on was like, you know, you know, stuff that I'd seen in movies. And I think I was neurotic enough that she bought the whole thing that I was a Jew, you know? I know things are working on this date with who I will call my J-Date girl. Because with J-Date girl, she started to smile and laugh. And, you know, at some point she even played with her hair. So I was like, oh, and this girl was so open-minded and so nice. And I'm drunk. I'm totally drunk. At which point, Ghazi made the mistake that all drunk people make when they see that their shtick is working. He doubled down. And then we're walking past the falafel cart, and I just mentioned something about, like, that guy has a lot of nerve, you know, to be selling falafels, you know, after what happened in 9-11. I said, I said, I said, the nerve of these people. And she kind of goes, well, you know, he's just trying to make a living for his family. Because he wasn't listening to her. He was on a roll. In pretending to be a Jew, I became a right-wing um, you know, pro-Israeli, um, you know, let's have more settlements, build a wall to the moon, the Arabs should never get over this wall kind of thing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if my parents could hear me, <laughs> they would hand me over to Hamas smiling, you know. Not one moment entered my mind that I was Ghazi, the Arab Muslim, the son of Palestinian refugees. The girl got turned off and they had an awkward silent train ride home. She never messaged him again, but he was determined. He tried to learn Hebrew at the 92nd Street Y. He went to some Jewish mixers, struck out there too. But then he went to a temple with a friend one Friday night. It was an ornate old temple. And immediately, Ghazi was struck by the whole scene. Beautiful layout. I remember walking into the synagogue. It was festive, there were some festive lights. Music began to play and people started to dance. A traditional dance, Ghazi didn't know. 
all of a sudden, this whole synagogue became a few circles of festive dancing. I kind of just happened to look, and this girl is really, she's really staring at me. I came around again, and this time I looked at her, and she kind of looked at me, and she shyly looked away. I, as we kept passing, I kind of started going around this dance thinking, you could talk to her, but this is such a lie that it's not going to work, man. And she was so nice that I felt guilt about pretending to be Jewish. For me, it was a moment where I really kind of caught myself because it was an honest moment. And at that moment, I wasn't pretending to be Jewish. I really was Ghazi al-Baloui when I was looking at this girl. At the end of the day, you're still a Muslim. What are you doing here? You're, you're dancing uh, around temples. You know, it's, it's a circle that brought me right back to where I started, which was Ghazi the Muslim. So he reeled back the Jewish act. He hung up his yarmulke. And of course, as soon as he stopped trying to be someone else. I wasn't expecting anything, and it just happened, you know? I meet this girl, and she was really, really funny. Got my sense of humor. She goes, you know, I'm Jewish, but I'm not, you know, running around telling people I'm Jewish. I said, oh, yeah, I'm definitely not running around telling people I'm Muslim. I think we had a good laugh about that. I remember, like, walking away, and I, I remember skipping in the street. I smiled, and it was a really cool moment. I mean, it was a watershed moment for me. They dated for a while. No lies, no gimmicks, just dating. And Ghazi was just Ghazi. I, like, met someone who was Jewish, who was cool, who accepted me, who didn't judge me. Let me tell you, that, for me, was like discovering penicillin or curing polio. But like a lot of relationships, it ended. And Ghazi says that when he goes on dates today, he's still tempted sometimes to omit the fact that he's Arab. Like, the, the current thing that I, I've, I'm not proud to say this is uh, pretending to be a Brazilian heart surgeon. So that is like... you doing that now. Yeah, I kind of do it now. Yeah, I do do it. But do wait, you? why? I thought I was uh, talking to the new and improved uh, Ghazi Abouli. Yeah, you know, you think I would learn my lesson, but it's like my crutch. It's it's easier for me to lie in my mind about who I am than to tell the truth. That's what it comes down to. You, know, you sit on the train and you look at these white guys and you go, you don't know how good you got it. You know, you, you're just you're totally accepted just for being born looking this way and being that way. Whereas I'm trying to transition and I can never get that, you know. There are certain type of women that will never want to date me. So in some ways, you know, it's a uh, it's tough pill to swallow. Thanks again, Ghazi Albalui. And I know you're going to find this hard to believe, ladies, but Ghazi is still single. Check your local synagogue for more information. Ghazi is a playwright and filmmaker who still hangs his hat in New York. He's currently working on a play, Highly Suspect, a comedy about race, gentrification, and modern-day Brooklyn. You can find links to Ghazi's work, including his most recent film, Peace After Marriage, on our website, snapjudgment.org. Leon Morimoto rocked that original score. Stories produced by Anna Sussman, Shoshi Shmulevich, and Joe Rosenberg. 
Now, when Snap Judgment continues, our hero gets the job that nobody wants, and he knows exactly what to do. When Snap Judgment, the quick fix episode returns, stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from Snap Judgment Underground Studios. My name is Ben Washington, and we know that life is not always about having the finest solution to your dilemma. It's about getting it done right now. No nonsense, no self-doubt, no pointing fingers. Did Michael Jordan ask Phil Jackson if it might be a good idea to shoot the ball? No. MJ went strong to the hoop. And for our next story, Simon Winchester goes strong to the hoop as well. Kinda. Quick note. This story does have some gruesome aspect snappers. Be warned. If your kids aren't into guts and gore, you might want to tune out, but (laughs) then you're going to miss all the fun. Snap judgment. So I have to admit, the guy I interviewed for this story... Yes, I'm Simon Winchester. I'm a writer. He's the writer, actually, of some of my favorite books. Krakatoa, The Professor and the Madman. I had been a journalist and foreign correspondent for most of my career, based in all sorts of places. Delhi, Hong Kong, East Africa, you name it. But this is the story of a job he had once upon a time that was a little less glamorous. It takes place principally in London in uh, the autumn of 1962. Um, I had left uh, school and I completely fell head over heels for a young girl from Canada. And I vowed that during the year off, I would go and visit her. And I I found out how much the fare was, and it was about £100, which was uh, an unimaginably large sum of money. And so I looked around for a job. And you looked at factory jobs and things like that, which were mind-numbingly dull. A lot of friends of mine would work in retail, but that was very badly paid. But there was a a small ad which said mortuary assistant required. Some basic knowledge of human anatomy, an advantage, but not essential. It also said £11 weekly. And so I applied for the job. I went to this office in this great big Victorian mausoleum of a hospital, and there was this man called Mr. Utton, a um, very large, burly man, but with a, with a club foot, so he clumped everywhere. But he was terribly enthusiastic that I had called because he said um, I was the only applicant for the job. Uh, and I said, why? He said, well, he said, it was, I suppose it's sort of me- necrophobia or something. It's a, a strange sort of, I can't imagine why people are upset about dead bodies. And I chimed in with, yes, I, I have no fear of dead bodies. I dissected lots of mammals, including rabbits, and I figured that a human was essentially just a large rabbit. He said, you sound to be just the chap, and offered me the job on the spot. But he didn't really get into any detail about the job description itself. I assumed it would involve the rudimentary things, opening freezers, um, putting them on stretchers and wheeling them around. But then he talked vaguely about um, that I wouldn't feel at all squeamish about preparing the corpses. And I said, preparing them? What actually do you mean by preparing the corpses? And he said, oh, you'll soon get the hang of it. Don't worry about it. And, and, And said, I've got to catch my bus and clumped off to the bus stop and see you on Monday. 
I did wonder what on earth I had gotten myself into, but nonetheless, I went home that evening and told my mother, and she was um, not at all dismayed. She thought this was quite a good job, particularly, she said, because you could bring me lots of flowers. Wherever there are dead people, she said, there are flowers. So uh, I turned up on Monday ready for work. And first of all, Mr. Atten took me into the into the mortuary itself, which I hadn't at this stage seen, and um, demonstrated to me uh, what went on. So they pulled a body out, put it on the gurney, lifted it, all of us together, onto the slab. And um, here, I think the first one was a was a late middle aged man, and we. Can I, um, well, let me stop you for one second. Um, this first body was this the first dead body you ever saw? I believe it was actually yes. Was it like a rabbit after all? No, it wasn't. It was. It, there was a for a start. The smell is terrible. The smell of the formalin that they use to preserve them, the sight of it, the clamminess of the flesh, the fact that it's insensible, it doesn't move. And it has to be said, opening up the intestines is not an attractive thing to do. You have to make an incision from the bottom of his throat to his belly button, break open the chest bone with large pliers, and then prise the chest open. But uh, the pathologist, this very, very large imperious German lady called Mrs. Fleischacker instructed me how to do it. Come on, just pull it a bit harder, Mr. Winchester. You played rugby at school, didn't you? Who do you think you are? And I'd always remember one of the more choicer details of her work was that she would smoke incessantly and would always tip the ash into the open chest cavity. And of course, if it was a long and involved one, it would look like a sort of large, bloody ashtray in there. And then finally, when she had finished smoking, stubbed the cigarette end out in the chest cavity. Anyway, Oh, my God. I, I, I have to ask, how, how did you react to seeing all this uh, at first? I just thought I was in the middle of some mad comic opera. Even, I think, at school, we had, we had treated the rabbits with some degree of tenderness, and this seemed to me truly monstrous. But it is rather astonishing what you can get used to. And after a week or so, I was accustomed to it, and I dare say I thought it was perfectly normal behaviour. One of the bonuses of the, of the job I had was that for every body, I'd be paid four extra shillings. And, and that was a tremendous way to make a lot of money in those days, because the winter of 1963 was the high point of one of these great London fogs. Thick, choking, sulfurous clouds of industrial pollution. I mean, I would ride home on the bus. A policeman would be walking ahead with a flashlight to show the bus driver who couldn't see his hand in front of his face where to go. It felt like you were breathing hot wool. It was miserable stuff which killed people right, left and centre. There was one spectacular Monday where I came in and I think there were 30 bodies. I mean, the fridges could only accommodate about eight, I think. So that was six extra pounds or something that I would earn that day. But to get through 30 bodies, that means one every 20 minutes or so. And so I became really fast and quite proud of the speed with which I could do this. And because one had to sew them up afterwards, remember, and I had never sewed anything in my life. I hadn't darned a sock. But I learned how to do a very good and very quick blanket stitch. And to do three of those an hour, tricky. And there was, there was corruption. I mean, I, I don't know if this is an appropriate moment to bring it up, but 
After about a week in the job, a sort of shifty man came round and said somewhat furtively, he said, are you the new mortuary assistant? And I said, yes. And he said, well, we're doing research on the pituitary gland. We like to harvest them. Would you mind doing that? So uh, I said, yes. Technically, of course, it is a crime. So I... I, I didn't tell Mr. Utton about it, but all I really had to do was to reach my index finger between the back of the brain and the skull. And you feel this pea-like thing, which is the pituitary, and you can pop it out, catch it in your hand and drop it in a jam jar. And every time I'd fill the jam jar up, I'd ring up this chap and he would come round from the, from the hospital, take the jam jar away and hand me a five-pound note. And um, would you do this on, on every corpse? Um, yes, I think so. Well, every corpse that I took the head off, the uh, the back of the skull off, and that wasn't every corpse, but it was most of them, because Fleischhacker liked having a sort of feel around in the brain to make sure that there was everything was okay up there. Since you had to do it a little bit on the sly, like when did you do it and like how long did it take? Oh, after I got the technique down, it would take about uh, 20 seconds. Just reach in there, the, lift the brain up, push it forward, and then out it comes. No other crimes were, were committed, I suppose, but uh, everything did come to a sort of rather shattering halt when I made my first inadvertent mistake. It must have been September or October of that year. It was before lunch. I opened the, the, the door of the fridge, and anyway, there was this chap. He was dressed, in other words, he wasn't in pyjamas, and I think he probably therefore had come from home and he had a tag on his toe like a little you know Paddington Bear luggage label saying question mark leukemia and there was no one to ask what to do I don't think Utten had come in Fleischhacker wasn't there but there was a, a, a manual in Utten's uh, office but I looked up in the index and it says leukemia and it said you take out the longest bone in the body which is the femur you, you had never removed a femur before no and it's not an easy thing to do. I mean, if it makes what happens at Thanksgiving with the turkey child's play. And eventually, with some wrenching and twisting and turning, I managed to get this nice, clean bone out of the leg. I was relieved. I was out of breath as well. Sort of, oh, thank God, I've got that out. The trouble was, in preparing this body, this chap's leg and the flesh of his unsupported upper leg kept falling off the table. So I was, if you can imagine, this is sort of Laurel and Hardy sort of thing. It, it just, I lifted it up and put it back and it kept falling off again. I'm sort of wrestling with this inanimate, but nonetheless moving, fleshy thing. And I'm sort of, get back, will you, for God's sake. And as this was happening, the undertaker came in and he says, oh, what's wrong with that body? And I said, well, I had to remove his femur. He said, well, I can't take that, mate. He said, I'm not allowed. But presumably there was a... There was a, a burial scheduled. There was a, an event. There were grieving relatives waiting, and I wasn't going to be the one to be blamed for the body not appearing. And I said, well, come on. I mean, this is ridiculous. Why don't you just take him and put him in the coffin and take him away? He says, no, no. He says, you've got to have something in his leg to stiffen it up a bit. So I said, well, all right, what what do I use? Said, it's not my job to tell you what to put in his leg, mate. So I'll tell you what. He says, oh, go and have me dinner. And when I get back, I'll expect you to have stiffened his leg up. So he went off and I didn't know what to do. I mean, what on earth do you put in a chap's leg? So I went out in the sort of yard behind the, the mortuary, which is a horrible place. And, uh, you know, puddles and grease and rats and things. But there was a length of drain pipe lying there. What's that? What is going through your mind at that moment? 
as an answer to my prayer. So thank you, God, thank you, God. I found something that'll make his leg stiffen up. So I took it back and jammed one end to his patella and then put it through the musculature and it fitted perfectly. The leg shot out like a ramrod. It couldn't have been better. So I stitched him up, put his clothes back on just in time and the, the undertaker came back. She's marvellous, mate. He said, you don't know what you've done, but I'll sign for the body. Thank you and I'll take it away. I was riding high. I could see why I'd gotten into Oxford. I was brilliant. And the fact that Sid said, oh, it's a pretty good job, mate. I felt so proud. Praise from an undertaker is praise indeed. But uh, it came back to me the next morning when I heard Utton being either screamed at or screaming into the telephone. I knew he was on the phone because I could see into his office. And I didn't know if someone was angry at him or he was being angry at them, but he was angry. Then he slammed down the phone and he clumped in on his bad foot into the mortuary and fixed me with a glare and he pointed at me and he said Winchester and I thought my god what have I done wrong and I was racking my brains to think you know was it these pituitary glands had someone sort of rumbled the scheme obviously I'd made some big big bish and I didn't know what it was and he soon told me because he said you know that body yesterday did you you dealt with someone that had a tag saying leukemia and I said yes and you put something in his leg? And I said, yes, I did. I put a piece of drain pipe. He said, Winchester, he said, that body wasn't buried, he said, you idiot. It was cremated. In an instant, I thought, oh, my God, and just instantly imagined that when the coffin rolled into the flames and then they were raking out the ashes to give to the grieving relatives, there was this horrible clunk. And then a rather agitated official says, you know, it's not going to fit into the urn, I'm afraid, because there's this. And 14 inches of red pop drain pipe comes out. I thought, oh, my God, this is just not what I imagined. I had no thoughts. I mean, I might even get sacked. Utten's face was black as thunder. And he took me by my ear and he takes me to a cupboard. And he opens it, it's unlocked, and in it there is a sort of a, a basket full of what looked like sort of quiver full of white pine chair legs. And he said, if you ever encounter such a case again, chair legs, they incinerate to nothing. And this seemed a, a mistake that I'll never forget. It's seared into my consciousness. Never put a drain pipe into a man's leg. Did you take your job more seriously after this? Yes, I, I, I think I did take it more seriously. Um, there is a, a veil of secrecy, much as there is behind the kitchen doors in a restaurant. And I think Utten wanted to preserve the mysteries of, of what happens to a, a dead person. I mean, a few minutes or hours before they lived and laughed and loved and all the rest of it, they, they were a living person. So... There is an obvious violation, putting in the scalpel. Would I ever say anything to them under my breath? I probably would, I should think. Um, I wouldn't say prayers or anything like that, but I would probably say, this isn't going to hurt a bit. Big thanks to Simon Winchester. We appreciate it. But Mark, 
please don't tell Simon when I kick the bucket. And just in case you're wondering, Simon did buy that ticket to Canada and saw his girl again just as promised. He says they're friends to this day. Simon's next book is called Pacific. Nothing at all to do with dead people. All about the life of the modern Pacific Ocean. It's coming out in October from HarperCollins. You'll find a link to that and more on our website, snapjudgment.org. The original score for that story, in all its glory, was done by Snap Judgment's Renzo Gorio. It was produced by Joe Rosenberg. Now then, you just found the answer to the problem that you didn't know you had. That's right. But Glenn, I need more Snap in my world. But not to fear. You've got hours of Snap entertainment awaiting you right now. Snapjudgment.org. Subscribe to the podcast, Facebook, hit me, Twitter, hit me. Yes, that is me, and I want to hear from you. Snap was produced by myself and a team, an amazing team that never passes the buck. Please put your hands together for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. The Beatmaster, Pat Lassini Miller. Anna, the Banjo Sussman. Julie DeWitt, listen to the Blowfish and that guy that used to sing with him. Joe Rosenberg hates music of all stripes. Davey Kim has a quick fix of his own. Eliza Smith is in the mix. Anna Adlerstein drop kicks. Renzo Gorio eats tricks. Leon Morimoto runs quicks. Matt Ducat wins kick. Who wrote this stuff? Jasmine Aguilera. She won't have any of it. Our executive executive producers today were the super special awesomistic stampers, Jack and Finnegan Rossback. And this is not the news. No way this is the news. In fact, you could see the hole spring out of the dike, trick someone else into sticking their finger into the hole while you make your big escape and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is PRX. 